Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I've been warned because of some of my oral proclivities. Um, I've been commanded to keep my words brief under pain of excommunication. Um, so I'll, I'll try to do that. Times have been incredibly trying and busy in, in my life, both as, just as a, as a person, as an activist, as, uh, um, especially since October 16th of 2006, when the Military Commissions Act was made into law, which for the first time in American history uh, actually legalized the torture of human beings. And Senator McCain put up a, um, a bit of a fuss, which I think lasted about 17 and a half seconds, um, and then caved. And I'm pretty sure that what happened was is that there was a backdoor conversation where the Republican Party asked him to let this one slide and solve it when he's president. And, and I think that's a bit of a metaphor for the way in which we tend to go about solving the world's problems. We tend to think that we are the answer. And as long as we can have that access route into a position of power or have the, the ear of the Pope or something of that sort, that's how we're going to make change. And we make sure that we are not the ones thwarted in the process. And in the end, the process thwarts us. And I was having a conversation earlier with some students from Notre Dame, and we were talking about how can we um, change American foreign policy, or how can we be a better instrument of peace. And um, I've had a lot of conversations like this, and I, I keep the more that I, I do this work, the more that on the one hand I'm gratified to, to feel like I'm a part of a mission that's positive, but also the more exhaust, exhausted and lonely I become uh, in the process because the, the, the travelers are few and we need each other in a very, in a very real sense. And I, I've come to a few preliminary conclusions that I think that maybe the two most radical and politically, uh, radically political things a person can do in life is to have a family or to perhaps join, a, um, join an order, become a priest, a sister, a brother, uh, join, a Catholic, join a Catholic worker community. It's not with the NGOs, it's not with running for office, um, of anything of that sort, but forming communities of solidarity, which is the exhortation that John Paul II made in his battles with communism and, um, and the work of the solidarity movement in Poland. Now, I myself, I come from a military family. My grandfather fought in World War II, Korea and Vietnam. My dad was an army captain. My aunt was in the army as well. And looking back, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to comprehend the degree to which my faith and my nationalism were exactly the same thing. Um, being a part of a community that was, in a sense, neo-Zionist about American exceptionalism and the, and the fruits of American labor and the warrior mythology following World War II that every single time soldiers put on uniforms and go to foreign lands, it's to save the world in, in the way that I was told by my grandparents um, about American involvement in World War II. And remembering that I once believed that, 
and remembering who I was when I wore a uniform is an incredibly trying event. And the words of Jim Forrest this morning were monumentally chastening. The idea that we are servants of truth and not the other way around. And to be careful of using truth as a weapon and making sure that the only casualty in the battle is falsehood. It's incredibly chastening, especially after a conversation I had last Thursday night with the head of the ROTC program, uh, the, uh, the head of Army ROTC, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly Jordan. We had a very heated debate, and some of you may have read about it in the South Bend Tribune. And I had a conversation with my, with my mother a couple, the day before I left for Rome, uh, to meet up with Tom Cornell and Mike Griffin to speak with the, uh, the individuals in, in the Vatican that we were, were blessed to have access to. And I told my mom, I said, I, I, of course I can sit down and I can have civil discourse with just about anybody. I can make myself do that, but I have no comprehension what it's like to, um, to believe what I used to believe. I, I don't have those categories anymore. And I don't understand when people say that they want to sit down and have dialogue with the president. And in a situation of domestic violence, your first instinct is not to, to lavish the abuser with charity and sympathy. You, you stop the violence, you stop the abuse. And part of the charity that you show the person is a penance. And, and I said, I can't understand sitting at the table and talking with President Bush. We don't talk to him, we incarcerate him. Um, and, um, and for me, as a person who grew up in the, exactly the, the demographic that, that the president was targeting, um, those are hard words to, to eat, to, to, to comprehend historically, psychologically, that... Um, the good people that I, was that I was raised with, that taught me about Jesus, that that's the ideology that I am so incensed about. Um, but one of the things that I remember is the fact that my decision to become a conscientious subjector and my eventual decision to become a Catholic was an eight-year journey. It started when I was 17, and... When I made my decision to apply for conscientious objection, I was 24, and I wasn't accepted into the Catholic Church until last Easter. This is my first Lent as an actual Catholic. Um, I entered the military um, first when I was 17 in the Army Reserves, and I had ambitions of attending West Point and perhaps going on into politics. And I didn't like politicians who didn't serve in the military. I thought there was something vastly hypocritical about a person who has the power to send you know, people to war but had never been there themselves. And um, which is exactly the situation we find ourselves in right now, where the main protagonists of the Iraq war, whether it's political personalities or theological personalities from George Bush to Paul Weigel, or George Weigel, um, not a day spent in service, in uniform, um, in combat at least. Um, my experience of combat is what most chastened my conscience, um, and what I am most ardent about and, and, and desirous to comprehend more is how to bring back the concept of personhood 
back into politics and how to bring back the concept of personhood in theological discourse. And that is exactly the hardest thing for me as a person to comprehend when I'm in a, when I'm in a debate with Lieutenant Colonel Jordan and remembering that he's a person in the same way that I was a person when I was once on his side. And, and I'd like to say I had the, had, that I have the answer to solving that dilemma. Um, but now being 27 years old, I haven't reached the wisdom of Gandalf yet um, in figuring that path out, which is why coming to, to things like, uh, like these conferences and having the friends that I do at the Catholic Peace Fellowship is absolutely um, indispensable to me as a human being. Um, I said that when we were in our small group discussions, I said that my vocation was, um, uh, pardon the slightly crude nature of, of my answer, but it was to suck as little as possible. And I don't know how to get much more specific than that. Um, I guess technically speaking, I've left, the, I've left the army three times. I voluntarily left West Point shortly after, after about five months of my stay as a cadet there. And I went in, and it wasn't for any ethical reason. It was simply I felt stifled. I wanted to read Kant at 2 a.m. more than I wanted to shine boots and show up in formation. But the nationalism that I was raised in still had me very much on the track of becoming an officer. I just thought there would be a different path to getting there. And so I went into ROTC at the University of Iowa and encountered similar struggles. And I, I didn't necessarily have a language to, to, to map onto it for what I was feeling. Because like most of the people who are in military service, uh, they either have not been very well catechized, they haven't been very well educated, they, in order to articulate what's going on inside them and what's happening in the world. And I had some significant people in my life who tried to convince me that my talents and abilities were elsewhere and that there were many ways to serve a country. And I wasn't quite convinced um, because that's not the mythology that I was raised in. And um, I served a, a bit of time on, on reserve status and um, I was called back up to full active duty after 9-11, and by that time my politics had shifted a little bit. I had read a few more books, and I'd become a little bit skeptical, politically speaking, about what was happening in the war, but I didn't feel like I had an ethical alternative. I didn't know, I knew that something had to be done after 9-11, because three and a half thousand people died in, in, in an instant. But I didn't know if I wasn't to, to fulfill my, my oath, to fulfill my duty, I didn't know what else I was going to do. I didn't want to simply be another middle, upper middle class white kid who drinks lattes and studies at the university while his friends that he signed up in the military with are sent over to Afghanistan. I didn't want to be that kind of guy. And so I went back in the military, but I was, I was very anxious about what was going to happen. And I was trained as an interrogator and as an Arabic linguist, and I chose that job because I, it was the only job that guaranteed language training, and I had an interest in learning foreign language. Very simple, very simple reasons. Nothing profound, necessarily, um, like most of the people who enter the military, providing a skill that they want, providing access to education, perhaps. Um, but it turned out to be a very providential path for me, for where I was placed eventually. I was the very first person, or I was the only person in the crowd to raise his hand when the convoy commander said, who's never done this before? I was at the Baghdad International Airport, and we were about to take an armored convoy ride uh, to Abu Ghraib, where I would be stationed as an interrogator. 
in the wake of the, the prisoner abuse scandal, was a part of the 202nd Military Intelligence Battalion, and we were the people sent to the prison to clean the place up. And the convoy commander came through the crowd, and he looked me in the eye and he said, we don't fire warning shots. If you ever move your selector lever from safe to semi, you shoot to kill. And then I had the most vigilant 20-minute ride of my life. And thoughts of liberty and democracy were nowhere to be found. I was thinking, who's on the top of the roof? What's that on the side of the road? And my mind turned to instinct and to training, which basically meant my mind was blank. And it took a good month for that blankness to be imprinted by things that I had remembered from before I went to Iraq. The readings, of, the readings I had done and, and, and was continuing to do of, of John Paul II, of, of St. Francis, of St. Athanasius, um, in my budding explorations of ancient Christianity. And it took about that same amount of time, about a month, to not only get out of the cycle, at least initially, get out of the cycle of instinct and, and uh, um, well, mindless action, um, that I also started figuring out how things work in combat, because usually soldiers have about a month of naivety where they think that everything's going to work in the way that they were trained and, and that all of their knowledge is going to be very fruitful. And then you realize how you start figuring out how the real world works in combat. And when I got to the prison, there were, there were about 12,000 detainees. And it took about a month to realize that the people I was interrogating were 14-year-old boys, local laborers, young fathers, school teachers, veterans of previous Iraqi wars. I had over 130 combat interrogations, and I can count on one hand the number of people I spoke to that were guilty of anything worse than being Arab. Then came the reports about torture that I, uh, that I wrote. Um, bruised bodies when they came into the prison. Pictures of what had happened to people in the, in the first 72 hours of detention. And eventually, came the stories of my friends who were on those units, who were doing the torturing. Several of my friends were a part of interrogation units that, that used techniques of induced hypothermia, where you strip a man naked during winter, pour ice-cold water over his body, shove him in front of an air conditioning unit, and you drop his body temperature until it hovers around 86 degrees. If it drops below 86 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when the organs start to fail. And that's the president's definition of torture, is organ failure. You repeatedly take his rectal temperature, partly to make sure that, his, that he, his body temperature doesn't drop too low, but often these kinds of procedures would be done very violently, which sodomizes the man. And on October 16th of 2006, all these became legal because the organs didn't fail, um, or that was the, that was the, the presupposition. And individuals like me, like my friends, were given a, a get-out-of-jail-free card so that we can't be charged with war crimes. Um, and all of this is happening in the midst of news releases um, that, uh, and news reports from Iraq that, that talk about the insurgency as if it's one thing. And... One of the terrors of the war is not necessarily um, solely the violence that's being done to Iraq, 
Although we never, we never seem to remember that it's not just returning soldiers who have post-traumatic stress disorder, but there are 26 million Iraqis who have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, there's probably 5% of the violence in Iraq that could actually be attributed to terrorism, groups like Al-Qaeda and the rest. Maybe 30 to 40% is actual political insurgency, individual groups that have specific political agendas. And the vast majority of violence that happens in Iraq would, uh, has to be attributed to what's called the tribal defense system, which is basically neighborhood watch with guns. Um, that's certainly not the, the picture that comes over on the news. And I know I don't need to necessarily preach to the choir um, on these kinds of issues. Um, but for me, um, when I came back uh, from the war and I was hearing these kinds of things come over the news, I would just want to take off my shoe and just throw it at the television screen. Because none of these things are abstract to me. As an interrogator, I never had an abstract view of the enemy. I saw him across my table. I knew the names and, his, and ages of his children, his wife. Um, and when, when I talk about the, the exhausting and the lonely aspect of doing this kind of work, um, I was on the board of directors of Iraq Veterans Against the War, and, um, and we were doing some, some great work in my mind. Um, but for those of us who've, who, who've been there, um, this is all just radically personal. It's radically personal stuff. Rarely did I ever receive feedback on the kinds of interrogations uh, I did, like what happened to the men I interrogated, where the information went, what was happening as a result of my interrogations. Then one day, I went to my chief in the interrogation center, and he asked me what I was aiming for in this upcoming interrogation, and I said something about weapons caches and this, that, and the other. And he said, no, where is the bomb dropping? Who is getting arrested? What door is going to be knocked down? And it wasn't long after that that I got the one and only feedback from an interrogation that I ever received when I was in Iraq, and I got what was called a double A grade. Uh, the first day for, um, for good intelligence and the second day for it was acted upon. And it was a man that I interrogated who was basically a thug, um, had found a way of capitalizing on a wartime environment in order to uh, make money, to capitalize off of the instability. And, and I had been getting the grid coordinate uh, the grid coordinates of various homes of individuals that we were wanting to to access, which means that either the bombs were dropped in the coordinates that I provided, um, or someone was incarcerated. And um, and that's the hard thing to deal with. Um, I've told I've told the story several times about having um, pointed an M16 at three eight-year-old boys who were walking along the side of our of our convoy. And, and when, I, when I was in the Vatican this last, this last week, talking to, uh, to church officials, we were talking a lot about different areas of the just war theory. And I, said, and I tried to say to as many as I, as I could remember that when the individuals who we say are responsible for the common good, whether they're theologians or politicians, when they give the charge to war and they judge the parameters of justice, they're not the ones who pulled the triggers, and they're not the ones who come home with post-traumatic stress disorder. That's me. That's my friends here. We're the ones who do that. This is an incredibly personal account 
or a personal endeavor. War is not fought by or for ideas. It's fought by individual persons who possess human will. I was able to meet an individual, the Pope, um, Pope Benedict XVI, and Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, played a very significant role in the salvation of my faith. Um, Growing up in an evangelical community, it was a bit of a rough transition when I started taking to philosophy, um, uh, because the intellectual tradition in the evangelical world, in the world, in the words of Mark Knoll, who taught at Wheaton College, he said the the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there really isn't an evangelical mind, um, and um, and he wrote that while professor at Wheaton College, and and I'll attest that I, that that. It's not a unilateral, it's not a, a universal condemnation of the evangelical community by any means, but I, I certainly didn't meet uh, with great reception the questions that I wanted to ask about all kinds of things. And it wasn't until I encountered um, ancient Christianity and um, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions as well as the Anglican tradition um, that I started finding some answers to my problems and to my questions. And when I read the book Introduction to Christianity, um, I thought maybe there's hope um, because it's a beautiful, beautiful book written by um, then Cardinal Ratzinger. And when I spoke to the Pope, I said, my name is Joshua Castile. I was formerly uh, a U.S. Army interrogator at Abu Ghraib prison who then became a conscientious objector. And not only did your writings help to save my faith, but they also showed me a path of nonviolence um, and ultimately led me to the Catholic Church. And um, I gave him a copy of the article that... Griffin uh, talked about the Soldier's Magnificat, and I said, I, my hope is that my words might be able to bless you in the same way that your words blessed me. And he said, thank you, and he told me that he would pray for me. And, um, and there was a part of me um, that really wished I, I, I had not told him a single thing about Abu Ghraib, that I hadn't said a single word about the war, um, because this man, just as a person, really did play a huge role in my life and continues to in the same way that John Paul II played in my life. Um, and, and I wanted to be able to talk to him just as a pastor and not as a person who was going to receive a political ideology from me or a theological campaign, um, even though that was largely the reason why we were in Rome, was to talk about what was happening in the world. Um, and so as I hear the stories um, this morning and this afternoon, um, I keep on trying to remember how to, how to, how to um, keep these theological and political um, agendas that we have in the context of human persons and human relationships, um, which is not something I'm, I'm incredibly adept in because I tend to be a bit of a mind guy. I tend to be very convinced by ideologies and whatnot, um, but at the end of the day, those things don't sustain, and, um, and I take great counsel in the wisdom that was presented earlier about the daily discipline of prayer and, um, and finding strength in each other. I want to tell you one story um, more about Iraq, and then I'll hand it over to my colleagues, and then we'll be able to have a conversation. But in, in the process of becoming a conscientious objector, um, uh, you have to have a moment of what's called the crystallization of conscience. And mine came 
when I interrogated a 22-year-old Saudi Arabian uh, who told me that he, he came to Iraq specifically to fight jihad. And he was very open about that, and, which I thought was puzzling because our policy was that if you were a threat against coalition forces, you wouldn't go anywhere. So this guy was basically saying, I want to spend my life in jail. And he came into the room, and he was very meek-mannered, mild, and, and that was off-putting because as an interrogator, you don't want a person to show you respect out of the free gift of their heart because that gives them a position of power. You want to make sure that they have no choice but to respect you. And so I started asking him repeat questions and rapid-fire questions to get him off his game, to get him frustrated. And he hung with me for 20 minutes, and he, he never disrespected me. And I got tired of that technique, which was very common um, for me in Iraq. And we started talking about who recruited him, where he went, who he was going to fight with. And, and then I can't remember... If I, if I told him that I was a Christian or if he simply assumed so because I was an American. Um, but he looked at me and he said, you're a very strange man. You don't follow the teachings of Jesus, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you and to turn the other cheek. And I had already started writing my application for conscientious objection um, and had gone through about 100 interrogations. Um, I'd certainly become fed up about what was happening. And after he said that, I was completely silent for about a minute. And, and I said, you know what, I think you're, you might be right. Um, I don't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. It would make more sense if I was in your shoes. Because the most important people in my life have all been prisoners. It's been Jesus, Paul, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he said, I don't believe you. That I, if it was the will of God for me to spend the rest of my life in prison, I would accept the will of God. But I don't think you have the same kind of peace I have to accept that kind of fate. And for a second I thought, well, maybe you're right about that too. Because that's a pretty big thing to say, that I actually want to be staying in Abu Ghraib prison. Um, but I realized that I, that I was no longer doing what my job entailed of me. The textbook definition of interrogation is to exploit the greatest amount of intelligence in the least amount of time. And during the time that we were going through tactical or meetings where we talked about tactical exploitation, I was also reading John Paul II, who said that any time you reduce a person as a means to an end, as an object of exploitation, you participate in the culture of death. And, which is mindful advice as far as the peace movement is concerned, to what degree we objectify persons in our own pursuits and fail to see the person um, with whom we debate or whom we want to convert not necessarily spiritually, but politically, and see them as a means to an end. Um, I went to my chain of command and I said, I can't interrogate him anymore. If you need to get information out of him, you're going to have to find somebody else. Because if I go back in that room, all I'm going to see is a 22-year-old kid who's looking for answers, who's never fired a gun in his life. An idealistic kid who wants to, who wants to defend Muslim lands from an aggressive army, which is basically the just war theory. Um, and if I go back in that room, all I'm going to... I'm going to want to talk to him man to man, and I'm going to want to talk about ethics and religion and the cycle of vengeance and say, isn't it crazy that your people tell you it's okay to kill me and my people tell me it's okay to kill you? Why can't we take a different path together? But I certainly couldn't say that wearing the uniform because it wasn't my job and I didn't have the moral credibility to make that kind of an argument from where I stood. And a lot of that, that conflict goes back to the debate I had Thursday night with Lieutenant Colonel uh, Kelly Jordan about my oath. 
Um, I, Joshua Castile, swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. will follow the orders of the President of the United States and the officers appointed over me in accordance with the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Um, the whole time that Baxter was speaking, I just wanted to like add exclamation points and highlight and underline um, somehow, like maybe through impromptu dance. Um, <clears throat> um, when, it, when he was talking about um, our willingness to abdicate conscience to the nation state, and um, uh, and that's usually that's the main um, f moment of uh, the main reason why the secular peace movement became so incredibly exhausting to me is that I just couldn't possibly care any less um, about um, uh, like who gets into office and, and, and whatnot. Um, I'm sure some of that has to do with my proximity to the war and my age. Um, but when I, when I converted to Catholicism, right before I did actually, I had a chance to go to Rome to see Pope John Paul II laid in state. And I waited in line for 20 hours and when I made it into St. Peter's Square, we were surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people waving flags from Bolivia and Latvia and Poland. And, and, and it wasn't like the cathedral architecture that I'd seen in London just a couple days before, where all of the monuments are people holding guns and swords and magistrate this and colonel that. And um, it was just Jesus at the top, surrounded by the apostles, and down below is Peter and Paul. And Peter is only holding the keys. And Paul is only holding the sword of the Spirit and the scroll, which is the Word of God. Um, and I said, this is our eschatological destiny. We are the people that transcends local politics, that transcends the nation state, and we offer you truth and salvation, and that's it. Um, and we will be sojourners in your struggles. Um, but this is the community that I want to be a part of. But certainly a trip to Rome will show you that it's an eschatological journey and that um, there's a long road of catechesis and putting a hand to the plow and serving soup and providing jackets and blankets involved. Um, and it's more about praying to change history rather than to make headlines. Um, but before I hand over the mic, I thought I would um, um, break the cardinal rule of writers and read something that I just wrote. Um, and it was in response to the South Bend Tribune uh, article. Um, they wrongly said that I was dishonorably discharged. <clears throat> and I stormed into the office and said, no, I wasn't. Um, but it was a perfect, this was a providential moment because it gave me the opportunity to, to ask to write a 600-word um, editorial in response. So I got to clarify some things about the debate that Colonel uh, Jordan and I had. And this might give you a bit of a taste for what we talked about. In response to Ken Fowler's, who's the writer, 23 March article, Debate on War Gets Heated, concerning my discussion at Holy Cross College with the head of the Notre Dame Army Reserve Officer Training Corps, Lieutenant Colonel Kelly Jordan, I find it appropriate to offer a few short reflections. I am not primarily interested in the fact that the article wrongly indicated that I was dishonorably discharged after my eight years of military service and tour of duty in Iraq as a U.S. Army interrogator and Arabic linguist at Abu Ghraib. The fate of those who attempt conscientious objection is in fact so fraught and perilous that the reasons why my discharge was honorable are few. The short of it, I did what I was told and discreetly sought my exodus. Had I vocalized my moral and political misgivings about U.S. defense policy while still a soldier, 
the same manner in which I did Thursday nights, and undoubtedly this exodus from the army would have been radically different. But of course, that's the nature of the beast. Soldiers are sworn to protect democracy, not to practice it. Indeed, Lieutenant Colonel Jordan was not at liberty to discuss Thursday night his own views about the Iraq war in virtue of his oath as a commissioned officer. Lieutenant Colonel Jordan swore that he, quote, freely, without mental reservations or purpose of evasion, end quote, would dutifully execute his office. Lieutenant Colonel Jordan is an exceedingly honorable man whose moral bravery saved the lives of 34 Iraqis during the Gulf War. Many other soldiers, sailors, and Marines, Catholic or other, pursue to do likewise in their noble mission to serve their country. But in a time when we have witnessed two popes and the vast majority of the universal church decry the illegality, injustice, and immorality of the Iraq war, one must at least have moment for pause to consider whether one's oath to a country is sufficient to closet ethical debate, moreover, ethical action. Section 2310 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, those who are sworn to serve their country in the armed forces are servants of the security and freedom of nations. If they carry out their duty honorably, they truly contribute to the common good of the nation and the maintenance of peace, end quote. Yet no honest witness of, the, of 20th century bloodshed can state that, there are, that, that a mere two sentences provide the state a blank check to determine the parameters of justice, let alone speak authoritatively for Catholic conscience, and the catechism is not silent on this issue. Catholic conscience, formed by the entire teaching of the church, with greater emphasis placed upon the gospel than catechetical teachings which may develop through history, leaves no easy out for, um, from the mandate to, quote, obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. This is what led St. Martin of Tours, now the patron saint of soldiers, to, say, to state, I am a soldier of Christ, it is not lawful for me to do violence. Would the catechism have allowed St. Martin to serve his country? Absolutely. But the Catechism is a book of principles to aid the universal church and must always be localized to the practices of specific regions. In a country that prohibits the precise requirement of the just war tradition, i.e. selective objection to particular wars, how can a Catholic officer honestly state he or she has, quote, no mental reservations to fight in a war the Holy See has vociferously labeled illegal, unjust, and immoral? The greatest evil is done not at the hands of evil men, but through the silence and willing inaction of virtuous men. Um, I haven't sent it in yet. If anybody has any comments or suggestions, you can see me afterwards before I send it into the to uh, the paper. Um, but being a peacemaker is a hard thing, and I don't necessarily consider myself to 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 be one entirely. But Cardinal Stafford, who we met with, who um, is the prefect for the um, the council that creates um, heinous or very creative penances for people who have done really heinous things. Um, and he's also on the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He said, um, he said that you're walking, a, you're walking a path, this whole issue of nationalism, of fidelity to the, to the kingdom of God above and beyond the kingdoms of men. It's going to be a lonely journey. And there are, there are, not, there are people that might be sympathetic to ideas, but walking it out in practicality is not a well-traveled path. Um, and... I remember watching The Lord of the Rings, which I think is the perfect metaphor for the Christian path and the role of power, that we're supposed to be ring bearers and not ring wearers, um, whereas the church is usually Boromir and others who try to put on the ring of power and use it against their enemies. Um, where Frodo's in the garden, with, um, in the elven garden, and um, Galadriel, he says to Galadriel, um, I know what I have to do 
but I'm scared to do it. Um, I, I feel so very much alone. And Galadriel said to, uh, to Frodo, Frodo Baggins, to be a bearer of the ring of power is to be alone. Um, and on the one hand, um, there's a certain comfort in hearing, in hearing words like that, in the same way that Mother Teresa said there weren't really any days in her life where she felt warm fuzzies. Um, or when Dorothy Day talks about the long loneliness um, of serving the poor and being an instrument of truth. Um, because the world doesn't pat you on the back when it happens. Um, but it's certainly a call of um, a call to communion, um, not just um, ecclesially, but uh, fraternally, um, and finding ways to. Uh, and I'm preaching to myself when I say this because I was, it was a very heated debate <laughs> the other night. Um, finding ways of forming alliances um, with those who used to be me. Um, and still are, um, and I and I don't say that in a sense of a rival, um, but um, well, in whatever sense I'm capable of saying. Um, so, in that, I'm going to pass it off to my colleagues, and and we'll have a discussion. <clears throat>